not artificially sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. Hello everybody, I'm Stan Landau. Uh, welcome to our second podcast. Joining me again, Michael Brown, uh, Hi, Senior Specialist Diabetes Nurse Education. Hi Michael, uh, busy week for you this Hi, past week? As always, there's never a dull moment in diabetes care and certainly in the academy we have many projects on the go. The arrival of this podcast has put another thing on the production line, but it's exciting. We are now available on Spotify and Anchor. Just look for Not Artificially Sweetened. I'm very pleased for those uh, listeners who sent us through questions and who shared the podcast amongst their own social media networks. That's very reassuring. So if you like this podcast, we'd be grateful if you could send us a like and, and uh, share with your own network. And in that way, we can enhance the collective teaching and learning that our uh, academy strives for. You spoke of a busy week, diabetes, clinical medicine, there's always something new and one can reflect on some of these new and technical developments that manifest in diabetes. Interestingly enough, patient I saw this week is in fact quite the opposite of something new. Here's a person who's had diabetes for 51 years. Absolutely wow. remarkable. We speak of this golden cohort group of patients who've been going 50 years plus with type 1 diabetes. And the interesting thing about that, and I'm 50 and I chuckle about that, I mean, this person has had type 1 diabetes since the early 1970s. And when one reflects back at the quality of gear, so to speak, that was available in those days, whether it be the absence of finger prick test and the dependency on urine testing, older insulin syringes that needed stovetop boiling, very, very few insulin treatments. It's absolutely remarkable that this person, who was a long-standing patient of Larry Distillers from way back when, has done as well as they have over all of these years. And really a tip of the hat to this person, 51 years type 1 diabetes. The interesting thing about this golden cohort, and there are a number of those patients that I guess I'm privileged enough now to be involved in their care as they enter, perhaps for many of them, their later years of their lives, is the aspects that come out of the golden cohort data. The interesting feature here is how little insulin they use. And it's interesting that uh, literature tells us that for people with type 1 diabetes whose total daily dose of insulin is low, those patients who have high good cholesterols or HDL generally run into fewer diabetes complications as the years persist. There are a number of biological plausible mechanisms for this, but it's a very interesting phenomenon that is consistent amongst this group of patients. And this fellow's total daily dose of insulin, just over 20 units a day, which in essence is unusual because at the CDE Houghton, our average basal insulin or long-acting insulin dose for most patients with type 1 diabetes spans anywhere from about 20 to 25 units. So really wonderful to reflect on a case like this and take the learnings from this patient, because if you sit and listen to them, really the history alone is worth that visit uh, over and above. And in fact, they're, they're teaching me every day. That reminds me of a client we both shared a number of years ago. If you remember Myra, 57 years with type 1 diabetes, no complications. Unfortunately, she did pass away from something totally unrelated to type 1 diabetes, but we probably might refer to her in the future. What an amazing example of someone who was physically very active, who paid attention to what she ate, 
she looked after her body and also had a very low total daily intake of insulin, probably because she managed her carbohydrate intake quite carefully. I know Larry Distiller in those early years was particularly strict. Was That was his word that he would have used. It's interesting to recognize that amongst this cohort of patients that they are inevitably fit, well, and healthy, have remained active over the longest period of time, and continue to engage in activities that were presumed to be off-limits and inappropriate for that group of patients with type 1 diabetes. And they've lived through it all. If you look back 50 years ago, you might not have had the optimism as we have today. So a young person diagnosed with type 1 diabetes into this modern era with the kind of tech we have, closed-loop pumps, hybrid pumps, and the like, it's almost an inevitability that longevity is going to be part and parcel of their journey with their diabetes. I don't know that 50 years ago, I would have had the optimism I have today. And I, again, thank Larry for his wisdom. Fighting hard in those early years to secure good diabetes control. I don't like to use the word control. It was a word that we bandied around in those days. And remember that that data comes out long before the original studies proved that lower glucose is actually better for your well-being. Larry was far ahead of his time. And for many years before that formal data came out, his clients were benefiting from his insight into the management of diabetes. It's interesting you talk about the availability of products and medications and devices to help prolong life in diabetes. But currently, we unfortunately have a situation in our country where maybe people cannot access such things. And I saw last night that social media was ablaze with reports of insulin not being available in a large city in South Africa. What do you think about that? I think for people, particularly with type 1 diabetes, it's almost non-negotiable and it's criminal. Lack of access to insulin doesn't have an implication of raising your blood glucose. You can die. Yes. And if that social media posting were to be correct, it's criminal, as you point out there, and uh, that would need to be remediated. It's hopeful that communities could rally around, possibly the private sector coming to the support there. And the altruism of people with diabetes themselves very often has saved the day, particularly in Johannesburg, when such scenarios have occurred in the pediatric setting. I can think of a case a couple of years ago. And we're often blessed with our clients who come in and say, listen, I have a surplus of insulin. Are you familiar with people so-and-so who would mm -hmm. be able to make mm -hmm. use of these products? And uh, I hope that the social media matter settles quickly and good is restored. Absolutely. Let's take a short break now and hear from the Centre Pharmacy. The professional staff of the CDE Pharmacy have been caring for the specialised needs of people living with diabetes for nearly 30 years. We supply the widest range of blood glucose sensors, insulin pumps and infusion sets and we stock a wide range of food products and supplements to support your healthy nutrition needs. You can find the CDE Pharmacy at 81 Central Street in Houghton Estate, Johannesburg. We are open from 8am to 5pm, Monday through Friday. If the CDE Pharmacy is a step too far from you, or if you prefer shopping from the comfort of your own home, please visit the online store of choice for people living with diabetes, CDE Online. There, you can view all our products at your leisure and have them shipped direct to your door nationwide. Don't miss our weekly specials only at cdeonline.co.za.
we speak to the lack of availability of insulin with type 1 diabetes. For me, Michael, it speaks to a broader issue. I think, and you've taught this over many, many years as part of your C's, the letter C's for, for, for the teaching of diabetes amongst healthcare mm -hmm, practitioners. Mm -hmm. And one of those C's is consistency. And we recognize that the consistency of care, whether it be the provision of your practitioner, whether it be the time of day you come for your visit, or whether it be the medication you take, keeping your management of diabetes consistent is a pretty tricky thing. And I don't believe anybody with a chronic medical condition likes to have any sort of upheaval in the consistency of their care availability. And it's going to be awfully distressing for this group of patients who now have to scurry for a different brand or a different kind of insulin that's going to have a knock-on effect, usually for the worse, in terms of maintaining their health and well-being at that time. And also often, and I'm, I'm going to say this without pulling any punches, we see that in the private sector as well, where your medical aid from year on year frustratingly will tell you that you have to swap brands of insulin. You've got to change the delivery device. Perhaps they're not making available your particular needle size. And it really irks me that that small change can knock on many adverse outcomes. And I don't like it. Uh, I like the consistency of care across provision of pharmaceuticals. Am I being, uh, being loud on that? No, I would support and reinforce that, Stan. Medical funders should be consulting with specialists in the various fields of medicine in which they develop formulas. One understands why a medical funder would want to develop a formulary because they are dealing with a finite pool of scarce resources. But at the same time, if you develop a formulary that does not take into account the needs of the person being treated and actually causes more harm than good, well, then you, you can actually in the end cause more costs, more sickness, and lower the quality of life, which is a very important outcome in addition to all the other clinical outcomes we strive for. I want to bang the drum even further on this. We recognize that the provision of formularies in this country and most of the management for people with type 1, type 2 diabetes is independent and completely void of the person with diabetes's voice. And it's yes. nice to see that the advocacy groundswell in South Africa is uh, is developing. Uh, we know that Diabetes Compact is coming. And we've seen this particularly, I think, out to the group from the University of Pretoria and some of the other well-known diabetes advocates in South Africa, particularly around the availability and eventual provision of continuous blood glucose monitoring. I think that was very well done. And that uh, agenda was pushed predominantly by, by the advocacy groups. What's missing, though, is the person with diabetes voice when it comes to drawing up the formulary. And I think it's inappropriate. Uh, that that they rely heavily on a group of or a small group of uh, opaque clinicians uh, who one never gets to know who they are. And I think it's high time that funders in this country took people with diabetes seriously and included them or onboarded them, I think is the more appropriate word, in, mm -hmm. in developing mm -hmm. these formularies. I agree with that, Stan. That approach to the inclusion of people with diabetes in their own care is coming out in the development of the latest set of national guidelines on diabetes that are being drawn up by SEMSTA, the Society for Endocrinology, Metabolism and Diabetes of South Africa. They have intentionally included a number of people with diabetes in the development of all the chapters. That's a great lead into that area and I certainly support your notion that medical funders should include people as well in the development of their formularies and baskets of care for chronic conditions. Pleasing to hear that there's this maturation of diabetes care in South Africa that's moved from a pure funder-driven component to a more inclusive aspect and inclusivity absolutely. of care, social justice, all of those attributes remain absolutely uh, on the front line in terms of the uh, outcomes that people with diabetes deserve. Absolutely.
Michael, we've been speaking about provision of care. You can't read a diabetes journal these days without getting a sense of polypharmacy. And, and unfortunately, much of the management of diabetes seems to be you know, hell-bent on the newer drugs and the better drugs and this and that, not diminishing some of the fundamental aspects, albeit nutrition or movement, physical activity that uh, forms a cornerstone of care. And what's interesting in the field of diabetes, at least from the clinician seat that I occupy, is the idea that every time you go and see your doctor particularly, you're going to have another layer of treatment added. Why? Well, because we've got something new for you and you come away having this perception perhaps that doctor's visit is merely another way of them sneaking on uh, another medication onto your prescription. And I can remember, I laugh now, it's, it's, it wasn't funny at the time, my days as a medical officer at endocrinology at the old Johannesburg General, people with diabetes prescriptions took the longest time to write out. Not only yes. did they have all of their diabetes management and their hypertensive treatment and their cholesterol treatment and so on and so on. And it, it continues to happen today. And I'm perhaps more mindful of this because I recognize that keeping company with the type 1 and type 2 diabetes are often mood disorders. And those kinds of medications where appropriate are finding their way onto the prescription. Getting to the point, though, is some interesting information about the idea of de-escalation of treatment. And this is something very close to my heart. Mm, and I, I think it's, uh, <laughs> I, I, we've covered it, in fact, at the CDE forum, and we're going to be covering yes. a topic like this on our next uh, journal club, which we're going to look at the role of medications in the upsetting of blood glucose levels. And we're going to touch on the idea of de-escalation. And if you turn to some of the recent literature this week, something that caught my eye, published in early January this year out of Denmark, was a fantastic piece looking at the outpatient clinic of a hospital in Copenhagen. Small study, 50 patients, but I think it speaks to the broader idea because these patients are not unlike clinical patients that we see in South Africa. And this group of investigators recognized that polypharmacy pervaded the care of people with diabetes. And in fact, if you scroll through the list of medications that made up a large portion of the non-diabetes treatments, there were things like paracetamol, proton pump inhibitors, very popularly used for reflux, statin treatment, which is almost an inevitability in people with type 2 diabetes, a host of over-the-counter vitamin and mineral supplementations, diuretics, beta blockers, mood-based medications, particularly the SSRI class. And the interesting piece to come out of all of this is the notion that if practitioners spend a small portion of the consultation looking at the appropriateness of medication rather than the assumption that everything on that list is inevitably going to be needed for life, you're actually going to be able to score some hits here and remove treatment that's wholly inappropriate. I found that very interesting. Great. Mirrors our approach at the CDE. We try and only provide medications that are going to create positive clinical outcomes, and also have a positive spin on quality of life. And if a medication does neither, or does only one, we need to review it together with the person with diabetes. And let's discuss if this is something that we really want to pursue. Hitting the nail on the head in terms of including the person with diabetes voice in the consultation. Uh, all too often, it comes across uh, that it's the doctor particularly who makes the decisions, the doctor writes the prescription without including that person's voice. And there's ample data uh, telling us that a lot of patients leave their doctor's particularly rooms or consultation rooms, disappointed and frustrated that perhaps their needs at that particular visit were not necessarily met, were glossed over, they weren't provided enough literature or care that should follow them after the consultation ends. And there's so many resources available. I think Diabetes UK, particularly one that caught my eye a couple of weeks ago, was preparing for university. Wonderful web-based notion and uh, how to transition from the high school period into university with an all-important aspect on the consumption of alcohol, which typically 
fits into that uh, age group narrative, the late teenage years and the early mm-hmm, 20s. Mm-hmm. That's such so relevant that you, you can't assume that everything's going to be covered at a visit. Why not make use of web-based resources or other resources to just emphasize and cement the, the time that you've spent with this person? And I reflect on how valuable the time was with this golden cohort patient. 50 years, you know, that's just, that's, that's fantastic learning all the time. That's what diabetes care is about. And if you're not learning, whether you're a health professional or a person with diabetes, if you're not learning and growing every day, I would venture to say, are you doing everything you should be? Because I certainly find in my practice that I learn something every single day. In fact, not something, many things every day. And I never will arrive in diabetes care. I will only continue my journey to increasing mastery of the subject. So Stan, continuing our notion that we need to include people with diabetes in their own care, let's listen to a message from Sweet Life Diabetes Community. Here's for people with diabetes wish you knew. Sometimes diabetes is not our top priority. Think about your own life, how busy you are, how much you've got going on. There's work, right? And then there's family, and then there's friends, and then there's all the other stresses that come with life. Maybe you have an elderly parent who's aging. Maybe your kids are needing a lot of attention. Maybe you have a health thing that's going on and you need to adjust your diet, or you need to exercise more, or, 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 or. We all have so much going on in our lives. And then when you're living with diabetes, you have all of that normal stuff, and you're managing a chronic condition every day, relentlessly, that requires you to think about what you eat, and how much activity you do, and how much you sleep, and how stressed you are every single day. And while a lot of the time it is a top priority, because if it isn't, we notoriously feel worse for not paying diabetes attention, sometimes we just need to be given a break. This insight was brought to you by Sweet Life Diabetes Community. We are South Africa's largest online diabetes community, and our goal is to empower people with diabetes to live long, healthy, happy lives. You can find out more about us on our website, sweetlife.org.za, or on Facebook, we're South Africans with Diabetes, and on Instagram, we're sweetlife.org.za. Thanks for listening. Wow, Stan, that was quite a heartfelt message from Bridget. Incredibly powerful stuff, and stuff that you don't necessarily get told or hear in the day-to-day nuances of a clinical visit. Come in, fix a problem, go out, see you in six months. It's wonderful again to reflect that the voice of the person with diabetes needs to be heard. It needs to be incorporated into the provision of care and that it's okay to take a break of sorts. I think that holiday component, for lack of a better word, is okay. And we're recognizing that. And perhaps where the healthcare provider could come in is affording what constitutes a safe holiday. In other words, what are the boundaries that we're going to be negotiating? Where would it be okay? And how can we help you through this particular aspect of your diabetes journey, which won't necessarily be always, but it is for now. And we'll pause and regroup and you'll get back onto your regular process of care and your pathway to good health and well-being. That brings us on to a topic which is very dear to my heart, and that is of communication. Now, of course, communication is an extremely complex subject. And we could spend many podcast hours discussing and unpacking it. And I think we will over time. But what came to my mind today, especially from editing our last episode, was that both you and I, as we've discussed earlier, tend to use a few filler words every now and then when we're battling to think of what to say next. 
And it highlighted to me the idea that for communication to be interesting and viable and to, to lead to someone wanting to listen to it and to be engaged in it, it has to be clear. It has to be concise. But that leads us on to another issue. Many in the audience may be aware of the common saying often associated with visiting our priest or a lawyer or in the medical consultation that what is said in the room stays in the room. An important concept in so-called protected conversations. The idea of having a protected conversation is to allow space for the person to be 100% honest, 100% clear on what they are engaging in, so that the person they are seeking counsel from has the maximum amount of information to assist them. Now, what we often see in the diabetes consultation is that many things remain unsaid. And so I've come up with a phrase that says, what is not said in the room can never enter the room. And I'd like us to think about that and maybe unpack it a little bit. What am I saying here? I'm saying that if there are things that are not brought into the consultation environment, that means they remain unexamined. Negative impacts continue. I see that as a clinician. I've had many clients come in to see me. Their HbA1c is 10.6%. And I know immediately that there is a problem with their therapy. And as we are taught in diabetes, we approach that gently. How's things going? How's it going with your medication? Any issues with that? And your lifestyle, any problems with how you're eating and so on. And the person will sit there and say, everything's fine. No issues at all. And we go through the tick box list of things that could influence blood glucose in a negative manner and everything tick, 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 no problems here. Now, of course, I know that there are issues that are impinging on glycemia, on blood glucose, but because those issues have not been brought into the room, I cannot discuss them. And so my message is that whether you're a person with diabetes or a healthcare professional, there are certain questions we need to be asking of each other. And I would like to encourage us as a diabetes community to always be as honest as possible. Of course, many people with diabetes fear being open and honest because they are scared of being judged. They are scared that they may be looked down on. Clinicians who are trained in diabetes care are taught that they should not be judgmental. And if you are, let's say, seeing a practitioner who is judgmental on your attempts at self-management, maybe it's time to seek another practitioner who is better versed in chronic care and in facilitating more therapeutic conversations. Michael, over the years that uh, I've been in diabetes medicine, to speak to your point of what's not said, how often a spouse, a family member has called me and said, you know, Joe is drinking heavily. I want you to bring it up at the visit, but you can't tell him I called. Doc mm. will be mm. in trouble and you you sit with Joe and you, you get to chatting and you speak about any kind of behavioral kind of attributes, including alcohol. And Joe denies, you know, he's an absolute teetotaler and you can't bring it up. You, you're absolutely right that there is plenty not said in those consultations. What, what are the kinds of other things that are not being said that you recognize as a clinician over, you know, many years worth of diabetes training that you appreciate are perhaps there just under the surface. And if you were able to get going, you'd see this host of things. Absolutely. So the number one on the list in keeping with the first topic raised was not taking medication. We know from the literature that after about a year, people with diabetes, only about 40% are still taking the medications that were prescribed to them the year before. Obviously, that can't apply to people with type 1 diabetes totally because they do depend on insulin therapy for their survival. But certainly, 
even in people with type 1 diabetes, we see substantial missing of insulin dosages. It doesn't have to apply just to insulin. It can apply to blood pressure medication, whatever medication. And there are various reasons for that. So for example, in insulin therapy, we may miss our dosages because we're scared of hypoglycemia. We're scared of gaining weight. We're scared that my aunt, my great aunt died within a week of starting insulin therapy. Maybe insulin will harm me. I'm worried about taking insulin because does that mean my type 2 diabetes is now more serious? And maybe if I don't take it, it won't be more serious. So that's an initial one that I would worry about. And I would urge people with diabetes, please, if you're missing dosages, whether intentionally or because of forgetting, which is possible, and we see commonly, talk about it to your healthcare practitioner. Let's together work on solutions on how we can address your specific fears or your management of your time and dosing schedule. Another one is specific fears. Some people are terrified of needles for if they're taking insulin therapy, for example. Another one, the use or abuse of drugs. I'm sure, Stan, you've been in a consultation as I have where you're in the middle of the consultation, the person sitting in front of you, their phone rings, and you hear an irate voice on the other side. The typical voice we would expect of a typical South African drug dealer saying, where is my money expletive? <laughs> you owe me, and so on. And the person takes the call and says, oh, no, I, you know, I sold someone something and I need to, or whatever. There's a story that doesn't make sense. And you can see through their disordered life, their disordered blood glucose values, that something is not right. But until they own up and saying, well, I'm snorting three lines of coke a day, it really limits my ability to interact with them in a positive manner. You know, we work as a large multi-transdisciplinary team in the setting of Houghton. Mm -hmm. And to come back to your, you know, classical teachings within diabetes is, is the provision of continuity of care. And it's always going mm -hmm. to be challenging where you sit with a person with diabetes and you've unearthed recreational drug use, perhaps an eating disorder, where you don't get permission to share that uh, with additional team members. You know, they've taken you into their confidence. Yes. And uh, it's fine if they said, listen, you know, I'm, I'm seeing the dietitian later this afternoon, or I'm seeing the specialist nurse education uh, uh, person later today, but please don't make mention of this. And fair enough, that's respectful. Enough. Where it's great is if there's continuity amongst the team, because I don't have those skills necessarily to be able to deal with or understand enough where somebody else within the broader team has far better capabilities and a skill set that can aid this person. After all, they're sharing it with you, probably for a particular reason. In other words, why now? You know, why is it coming out of the discussions? Mm. We've been looking after you for many years. We've been working with you for many years. What's changed now? I brought up eating disorders. Could that be another one? I mean, it's not always obvious. And we tend to think, you know, hierarchically, it must be a young Caucasian female who's going to have an eating disorder. My, my years have taught me that that's absolute nonsense, that eating disorders are extremely pervasive amongst people with diabetes, including men. Absolutely. So we do see that there's evidence in the literature that disordered eating and eating disorders are about twice as prevalent in women or in females than in males. But the evidence always points us to the fact that we should never discount that possibility in men as well. And we certainly do see that quite commonly in young people with type 1 diabetes, where missing insulin intentionally is used as a weight control measure. And it's even got a special name in diabetes. We call it diabolemia. It's a version of the well-known eating disorder, anorexia nervosa. But instead of not eating, you get rid of those calories, not by purging, by vomiting, as you would see in bulimia, but by purging through the urine. 
you allow the blood glucose to rise to a certain point where you lose calories in the urine and therefore can maintain weight. The problem is that the complications, the potential complications we always talk about in diabetes, and I said potential very in intentionally, because we don't have to experience complications in diabetes. We have so much clinical trial evidence and practical experience, as you've said, with the golden cohort of people with type 1 diabetes, that if they do pay attention to their management of diabetes, they can live long, healthy, and productive lives. But that will come back to bite them if you miss out on insulin dosages. So please don't be shy of sharing that with your team. We are not going to judge you. We've learned long ago that uh, we are probably the last people who can throw stones at anyone. Your diabetes practitioner also has their own problems in their lives, and we're not going to judge you. Just talk to us, be open with us, and we are going to be in a better place to assist you. I want to extend this theme because on Tuesday this week, there was the one of the most wonderful podcasts that I listened to coming to us through the uh, Medscape group with Eric Topol. Eric Topol mm -hmm. writes on all things science. And he interviewed a medical practitioner, Erin Neinstein, and they were speaking about the role of chatbot. Uh, mm -hmm. in the setting of medicine. And, and it was titled something like how chatbots can make us healers again. And what Nunstein spoke about here was that when he went into endocrinology, his job was literally to pour through pages and pages of patient data, looking for recommendations on how to modify insulin treatment, particularly in the type one setting. And they would spend the bulk of the visit modifying blood glucose levels based on what he saw. Recognizing now that in the era of hybrid and closed loop pumps, a lot of that work has been taken out before the visit, particularly if people with diabetes are remaining in touch with their care team asynchronously or synchronously outside of clinic visits. And he mm -hmm. was delighted to report that a lot of the visit now could be spent dealing with things that go beyond blood glucose assessments. And he had more time to deal with the day-to-day -day needs of people with diabetes, particularly their needs that go outside of glucose. And a you know, wonderful concept to think that will AI overtake us and we'll lose our jobs as clinicians, as has been the doom and gloom that pervades much of social media. And in fact, he may be right here, that it'll give us time to sit and talk and listen without judgment in a relationship that we can enjoy with many, many years, and in Larry Distiller's case, decade-long care with our patients. I thought that was pretty interesting and timelessly for, for our chat this week, Michael. Mm, that's a theme I've seen recurrently in the literature that AI should not replace us, but certainly enhance our ability to be more therapeutic as humans. So to remove us from the more technical aspects, or let's say reduce our enormous amount of time we used to spend looking through written diaries of blood glucose and now having that time available to discuss real life events that impact on a person's ability to self-manage. Another thing that I've seen is not necessarily lack of communication or lack of saying things, but maybe incomplete communication. And coming back to the question of alcohol, one of the clients I used to see was extremely overweight, a lot of excess fat around his middle. And we know that that is a primary driver of all the things that go wrong in type 2 diabetes. And we talked to many ways about how he could maybe reduce that load of excess fat. He had admitted to taking two drinks of whiskey each night, and that was acceptable. But later, I said to him, what do you mean by two drinks a night? And he said, well, two whiskey tumblers. And so what eventually transpired was that he was taking half a liter of whiskey per night, two 250 ml whiskey tumblers for wow. And that made a huge difference. And once we brought that into his awareness, he of his own accord decided to make it two tots a night 
and it was incredible. He started a journey of rapid weight loss in which he lost around 25 kilograms. And it was largely just for changing that one thing. And it wasn't because I told him he had to do it. It was because through our interactions, he was made aware of it. He had a chance to reflect on it and thereafter make his own decision as to what could be better for him. Great example of motivational interviewing, in essence, uh, becoming really the bedrock of, of chronic care provision. And in our setting, diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, alcohol consumption, fatty liver, and all the sorts that go into making up the metabolic milieu of diabetes. Michael, we spoke earlier about communication. We've spoken about how challenging it can be very often to offer care where you're not getting the full story. One of the challenges that is pervading South Africa at the moment continues to be the detection of type 2 diabetes. You know, it's out there and it ties in with a fantastic question that a listener had sent in. Sifa Munda had asked about where are we at the moment with screening for type 2 diabetes? And I think it was in the podcast last time or or possibly in in the journal club we we had where I mentioned that it, it wasn't a glamorous condition. There didn't seem to be this groundswell of urgency in detecting it as there had been and continues to be in terms of the treatment with HIV. And you get the sense the South African government has done a phenomenal job rolling out the largest ARV program globally, really getting Mm -hmm. that under control and being able to show what could be done, possibly a glimpse of national health. But we're stumbling with type 2 diabetes. And Sifa Mandler's question is a great one. Do you want to just walk us through this? Yeah, I'd actually like to read his question because I think he shows some quite good insights that we could unpack. So he says around the world, the prevalence of diabetes has been one of the leading causes of morbidity, that means sickness, disability and mortality or death. We've seen a repository of literature indicating that a high burden of undiagnosed diabetes, as well as the proportion of people who present with diabetes complications at diagnosis, suggest a potential window for earlier detection and treatment through screening. Moreover, 50% of the population living with diabetes remains undiagnosed. The reason for this challenge stems from the knowledge that A, diabetes is a silent condition, being that it's largely asymptomatic, and B, that hypoglycemia develops gradually and may not produce symptoms. Also, people with diabetes only become aware that they have the condition when they develop diabetes-related life-threatening complications. He really brings to the fore all the World Health Organization teaching of the conditions necessary for a screening campaign to take place, that we have something that is highly prevalent within our community. There is a long period of latency or asymptomatic period in which you are exposed to diabetes and its deleterious effects, but we don't know about it. And that diagnosis and treatment can produce positive outcomes. And we have that very clearly demonstrated in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, that intensive glycemic management can reduce the onset of potential large vessel and small vessel complications. So yes, I think there is a huge role for screening in South Africa. But maybe what are your thoughts on how to do it, Stan? Because we have to bring into account, I think, things like cost effectiveness and the efficacy and the specificity of screening practices. I think that the screening for type 2 diabetes is particularly easy. I think you need a laboratory test for that and little more. Where the stumbling block falls in is where that diagnosis is diminished, where you fit into a category of confirmed diabetes and somebody says inappropriately, it's mild, not to worry. It's only just over the border, touch of sugar, light diabetes. It's not chronic. Mm -hmm. You'll be okay. Uh, That represents its own aspect. And there are patients that you see both as private and public sectors who have that component. I think it should be screened as per the guidance 
guidelines for SEMSA at the moment, and no doubt the updated guidelines when they are published will continue to say that if you're over 40, it's wholly appropriate that you be screened for type 2 diabetes. Whether you fit the classic bill of old that you needed to be of a large body side and uh, come from a particular ethnic group is no longer appropriate. Type 2 diabetes is so pervasive that over 40-year-olds should be screened in the presence of no symptoms. That would be my mandate uh, if I could have my way. And that's a fasting blood glucose done in a laboratory and not dependent on a finger prick test. Right. Michael, we, we speak of screening. We've, we've covered an enormous spectrum. We've got this idea of, of screening from Sifamandla's question right the way to the golden cohort 50 years. And I think what we learn from the 50-year-old cohort here is that if people with diabetes, in this case type 1 diabetes, but no less relevant for type 2, manage their care together with their healthcare team, long, healthy, lived lives are inevitable. And that message was played home in the insert from Sweet Life. But recognizing that along this journey, there are going to be stumbles. There may be time to recognize a timeout or holiday, for lack of a better word. Getting back to your management care is going to be how people could roll with their diabetes to ensure outcomes are great. I've no doubt that this fellow I saw over 50 years hasn't had plain sailing every single day and has had rockier periods, perhaps periods of poor health. But I think we can learn a great deal from a population that are connected, who have access to high quality care. And that would be my next wish is that even if national health insurance were to pervade, diabetes can't afford to go by the wayside. I agree. We have a small base of very experienced diabetes clinicians in this country, and we should be involved in development of any policy around the management of diabetes, rather than devolving it to the very lowest level of care. We come to the end of our second podcast here today. Lots of interesting stuff, and no doubt in the weeks ahead, day by day, we'll continue to see high-quality research that have a positive impact in the clinical setting. And I'd like to keep the research that we speak about here grounded in the clinical component. I think uh, for those healthcare practitioners who want to know more, get in touch with the CDE. We offer a number of high-quality teachings and learning opportunities to expand knowledge for us, and we can spread that out into the diabetes community. Outcomes are likely to be better in due course. Thank you very much for joining us. We hope that you enjoyed this session. If you have any questions, comments, or contributions to any of our sessions, please get in contact with us. Our email address is podcast at cdediabetes.co.za, and you can catch us on Spotify or Anchor. This podcast series is free. We had a listener write in to ask how much she needed to pay. Absolutely free. You're welcome to join us. This is a CD Academy outreach program to disseminate the good news about what is possible in diabetes care. We wish you a good week ahead and that your management and self-management efforts all bear fruit. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk, and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes, the health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice 
diagnosis, or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time.